The Boating Life Podcast with Savvy Navi, making marine navigation at sea easy. Welcome to another in the series, The Boating Life with Savvy Navi, as we go about trying to reduce some of the barriers to boating and hopefully help you to overcome them. Among the guests still to appear on this podcast are a leading marina operator, along with a specialist marine insurance broker. Some great guests that complement the real stars of this series, the crew on board a westerly sea lord called Phoenix. Once we've caught up with them, we'll hear from Stefan Vessels, the CTO of a company called Exshore about their exciting plans to bring electric boats to the masses. First though, it's time to travel up to Scotland. Once again, delighted to be joined by our intrepid trio of adventurers out on the good ship Phoenix, Freddie, Lauren and Adam. Have I got the running order correct there, guys? <laughs> I think, you know, Freddie stands at the top. He's the captain of this ship, so yeah, you are correct. And I stand at the bottom, so yeah, that's about right. <laughs> <laughs> Depends which day it is. <laughs> so last time we were talking about your circumnavigation of the UK, we left you in sunny Inverness by the sea and uh, you were ready for your next stage of your voyage. So you were in Inverness for a couple of days, is that right? And then moved on. So just talk us through what happened after that. Yeah, so we waited in Inverness. We had to wait for a uh, delivery to come. So that held us back a couple of days, but we're... 100% grateful that we did hang fire because it meant that we had a high pressure system come over at the perfect time for us to start our Caledonian Canal transit and the entrance to the canal is just round the corner from Inverness I think it maybe took us about five to ten minutes to get there if yeah. that so it's literally just round the corner it's the perfect place to launch off your transit because you've got to get to the sea lock at a certain time which you will arrange with the lock keeper the night before or in as an advance as you want to but we just did it the night before and they were completely fine with that and yeah just well i don't know the canal there's so much to say we had such a just absolutely amazing amazing time and we noticed as soon as we entered the canal even turning that corner the landscape just expanded and there was mountains around you and you really sort of felt, oh my gosh, this is the entrance to the west coast of Scotland. Oh, it takes you 60 miles through the Scottish Highlands, through a canal system that was originally all dug out by hand and it's now maintained by Scottish Canals Authority or something. But yeah, it's an absolutely amazing, amazing trip. And I know a lot of people say, oh, you're cheating by going through the canal, not going through the top. But it's an experience in itself and I would just recommend it to anybody but if you're thinking about doing it 100% go for it because it was just fantastic wasn't it yeah it was definitely definitely the highlight of our trip I'd say yeah okay so let's talk about getting the boat ready for that trip because it wasn't just a question of rocking up at the the first lock how did that go and and what did you have to think about and licensing and all that sort of sort of stuff so the licensing you buy online and which is really straightforward you can just do it through their own website and there are several options on the licenses you can take. So I think you can do like a three day pass or you could do up to a seven day pass. Seven day pass is the longest one that you can do. It depends what sort of trip you want to do. We've spoken to people who've been in a big rush and done it in 36 hours. But from our experience, that would be very, very tight and rushed. We took seven days and to be honest, we could have taken 14. If there was a longer pass, we would have taken it. Yeah. We managed to sort of have a stop or two in some of the main locks like Loch Ness which we actually anchored in for the night but with the seven day pass you still have to press on I would say quite a bit mm. you're on the move pretty much every day. So a lot of people including ourselves get themselves a fender board which is essentially 
as you're in the lock and the, the water's being drained out of it, the fenders can pop out. So a fender board just keeps the fenders from popping out, but also keeps them protected from the wall because a lot of the walls are stone and you can gather quite a lot of grit in them. So. And it's really, really, really hard to get out because one of the times the lock keeper actually pushed our fender board up and said, oh, we don't, we don't want you to use that here because it will get caught on the lock doors. And it actually, well, our fenders were up against the wall and they were so so gritty and for me to get that dirt off which then spread all over the hull it was really tricky so definitely get a fender board whether they let you use it or not I'm not sure it depends on the day but I would still have one mm. yeah and then fender placements I guess that's always something that everyone's got their individual place to put them but I sort of had a, a range of some up high for rafting height also a couple slightly lower kind of above pontoon height but below rafting height just so that if any surge or anything like that from the locks when they open them at first if it did push you against the side you've got a wall of coverage mm. but again that's a personal preference everyone likes fiddling around with it but another important thing is to have ropes that are long enough so they they recommend and what we had were two ropes double the length of your boat which was plenty enough we if anything it was a bit too much but i think on the website it says two times 15 meter ropes which would again be plenty mm. but at least you've got the scope there if you need it that's right and then you just need to decide how you're going to be rigging these lines for us there was only two of us so we rigged it so that as we came into the lock we could both throw the bow and stern line up to the lock keeper who will always help you with your lines if they're available if they're available and we had a bowline tied tied into the end of, of our ropes which he puts over a hook just a big metal hook it's the whole way through the the canal they don't have cleats or anything and then from there the lines went down through the cleat and then back to the cockpit so that i could go and control the bow line and the stern line from independent winches so then i could just take either slack up or i could ease it off easily just myself on the boat and lauren if needed she could jump off uh, mm. and help the lock keeper uh, with the lines if and needed. And the adjustments that you have to do when the water comes through or is let out, it's very, very gentle. If you're at the front, I think maybe it might be a bit more rocky when the water comes through, but there's plenty of time to adjust it. And if you're not as quick as you want to be, you have got time. Once you're on, you're on and you can relax then, really. Yeah. But yeah, just following on from how are we going to have a setup? Just be mindful that we had a plan in place and we were like, yeah, we know what we're doing. We're going to go in and we're going to do the X, Y, and Z. We got into the lock and the lock keeper wanted us both on the shore and we'd had everything rigged from the cockpit. So he, this particular lock keeper didn't want to help us with our lines and said we both had to be on up on the top. So we had to think really quickly. We ended up leaving Freddie on the boat on his own because we were in such panic. He was tied on. Then we yeah, we were sort of up on the shore. We readjusted everything. But it's just to be aware, have a backup plan if you do need to both be on shore. How are you going to do it? Can you quickly readjust all your lines? We got a little bit more confident with it as we went through. But one of the times I remember feeling out of sorts because you're under a time pressure because there's other boats in the lock and they want you to go through quite quickly sometimes. So my advice would just be to have a backup plan if you need to change your rigging. Yeah, and was there support from other lock users? Not really, because everyone's so fixed on what you're doing on your own boat, you haven't got time to really help anyone else. And once you are on the shore holding the line, if you let that go, then it's you need to keep hold of that at all times. But generally, the lock keepers were really friendly. We probably was a little bit busier for us because there were several stag do's and hen do's going through on higher boats at the same time, which 
I don't know whether that maybe that added to their stress level so they might have been a bit of uptight but most lock keepers were really lovely and we just said that we've never done this before and they were really helpful so yeah don't let that put you off and how many locks in total i think it's 28 oh i can't remember now yeah, <laughs> uh, it's a lot. It's a lot. There's a lot of locks. There's a lot of swing bridges, which we didn't realise. And what else? That was just it, I think. Yeah, locks, staircases and swing yeah. bridges. They're all easily contactable on the VHF. They're yeah. all on the same channel, which I think is 74. Uh, they were yeah, all really friendly. If you can just radio ahead before you get there. Sometimes the locks were quite busy, weren't they? So we had to hover, which because we had this high pressure and not much wind, was perfect for us because we could just hang fire but I can imagine it might get a little bit um close quarters yeah if um, there's lots of boats hovering doing the same thing but everyone's on the radio and you can chat to other people on the boats if you have to so you're working your way through you took your seven days to get to get through on this trip so talk us through some of the highs and lows of the trip I think the high definitely for me was anchoring in Loch Ness which is going through Loch Ness itself was one of those things that we'd always said to each other oh my gosh once we get to Loch Ness that means we're pretty much in the west coast of Scotland it was a big milestone for us so when we got into Loch Ness it was just real special for that um, and then we anchored in I didn't really think that you could anchor in Loch Ness because it's over 200 meters deep but actually there is a corner which is not that well known I don't think it is on the transit map just to the left as you go in there's a small anchorage there called Dawes Bay um, and we anchored in about seven metres, I think it was. Yep. Uh, quite close to the beach. And we actually jumped off the boat and we were swimming and we swam around the boat. And it was just one of those moments. It, it was so special, wasn't it? Yeah. We've got it all on. We filmed it all as well. It's just real nice memories of that. That day was particularly special, I would say. And I think the lows, for me, I've said it already, but it, it is quite hard work. You're on the move all the time and... For me as crew, I was constantly having to readjust things. I had to make sure that we were set up for going into the lock on a certain side and sometimes that would change last minute and I found that a little bit stressful. But towards the end, I think our confidence was a lot better. And also one of the things that I found tricky was in some of the locks, well, most of them on the staircases, they want you to actually pull the boat through so you don't... Because we weren't on board for some of them, we couldn't use the engine and our boats... Well, we think it's about 16 tonne, so it's quite heavy. Me at the bow and you at the sterns pulling the boat along. It does sometimes go against the wall. So the trick is to not, the lock keepers told me, is the person on the bow is to not pull any tension on the line. That person on the bow is purely just to stop it from going the halfway point to the so other drifting side. Drifting out too far Drifting from the wall. out, yeah. You were doing all the donkey work then, Adam. Adam was at the yep. stern <laughs> pulling, yeah. But it's tempting to pull it in on the bow. But if you do pull in on the bow, you're going to tilt the nose in and you're going to scrape. So we did do that once or twice, but luckily there's no damage. But if anyone wants to do it, don't be tempted to pull on the bow line, I'd and say. And if you need to, get a nice big uh, fender ball on the front. Yeah, pop that on the front, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Adam, same for you? Yeah, same for you. So a highlight for me was, well, we actually swam in, in all three of, did, the, yeah. of the major locks. But I think the lock oik which is the sort of smaller, slightly middle lock. That, for me, was that was, was, was a highlight. Yeah. That was absolutely stunning. We had a couple of RAF helicopters that mm. were doing some training practice who were flying really low. As we were swimming in the lock. Uh, yeah, they were probably 
15, 20 metres above us as we were swimming in the Like dock. we were in a James Bond scene. So that was probably one of the highlights for me. And the water was quite warm, actually, as well. And we swam with Freddie in that one. As soon as you get to, to Loch Ness, from then on, is just amazing scenery the yeah. whole time. And even now, when we're through the canal, it's just continuous mountains and, and, and the scenery. It's just yeah, it's, stunning. Yeah, <laughs> we can't get over it. I know we keep sort of like saying it but it's just it's so beautiful and if people want to see more they can go onto your uh, social media feeds onto instagram yeah it's all on instagram i did save a lot of the stories that i've been doing they're saved to my highlights so you, if you haven't seen it you haven't missed it it's still on there um it's on instagram it's at lauren underscore the sailor's path and you can see basically from the beginning of our trip and be and before that preparation for the boat and also all of the stuff that we've done on this trip and i'm still uploading stuff now what it's like to winter in scotland as well so there's lots of stuff on there but as far as lows for me i don't really think there were any lows because it was such a rewarding trip but as lauren says there's a little bit of stress when you are coming into these locks as there is with anything really coming into marinas or rivers and things like that but yeah we just went as slow as we could had fenders and everything went fine good communication with each other always be very clear yeah of what you want from each other because that's the last thing you need is uh, yeah raised and, voices. and be um prepared to slow down before you get to the locks in yeah. case there is a backup of boats i was just drifting in neutral at like half a knot for quite a while where mm. i could see boats were either waiting to come into the lock or boats that have just left the lock but you know it was it's just incredible and and coming down neptune staircase on the western side that was an experience. Which is the biggest one in the whole transit. It's one of those famous points that you think, oh my gosh, the boats come, the boats our, our boats the, come, down, come there. down there. We've pulled the boat down through there. It's just amazing. Yeah, And it's all overshadowed by Ben Nevis. So it, we were lucky, as Lauren said earlier, with the high pressure system. We had perfect visibility. And to see the UK's highest mountain yeah. uh, as you're pulling your boat through these locks is really quite special yeah it is and you said there were quite a few other boats out there but also of course there are boats um, based up in that neck of the woods that are actually based on marinas up there aren't there yeah we've met weirdly through instagram after this all happened we actually were in we were messaging a couple that actually live in one of the marinas at the beginning of Mm -hmm. the um, caledonian canal we'd been in several locks with them on our sort of trip and we hadn't really spoken on the trip at all until after. And we said, oh my gosh, it was you that was in the lock. So yeah, people do live on board quite happily and keep their boats there. We've also met another guy in Tobermory that was just visiting and he kept keeps his boat yeah. um, in there. I think because it's fresh water, it's probably a really good place to have your boat over the winter. Saves on a lift out and a scrub, I think. Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> um, obviously no barnacles and things will be happy to grow there. And it's it's just beautiful. I think it's yeah, a really sort of nice place. Completely different experience to what we've done on the east coast and what we've done on the west coast. It's kind of a trip in itself, isn't it? That yeah. sort of transit. Your boat's a little canal boat for a week or so. Yeah, yeah, how you know. wonderful. So let's run through what happened as you popped out the other end of the staircase to Tobermory and then on towards where you are now. We have done quite a lot since we came out of the canal. We've been to about six or seven anchorages and we've been back and forth to Tobermory for various reasons one of them was because we needed the internet and I had a job interview and other reasons were to hide from the wind so Tobermory became one of those places that we seemed to be in at least once a week for one point we were (laughs) back and forth but it just happened that the wind was a good protection from there there was not not really you know we had a great time there but 
we probably said we said we probably shouldn't go back to Tobermory next year because we've been there so much this time. <laughs> but yeah, there's just lots of anchorages around here, and some of them are just two hours away, which is an absolute treat compared to the slog of the east coast sometimes was eight to 12 hours so. yeah that's been a big difference on this uh the west coast rather than the east coast is you know you don't have to go very far to a new anchorage or a new town then you can hopefully plan it with the, the six hours of favorable tide so that makes it makes mm. it a lot easier around one thing just to say to be aware of when you do come out of the canal straight into the proper west coast of scotland is you do have to time that last lock when you come to the last sea lock and just to be mindful of the tide often the lock keepers will ask you where your destination is and give you some advice but you want to go with <clears throat> excuse me favorable tide because there's a pinch point not that far which is called the Corran narrows and the tide runs through there so quickly i think we speed through the water i think for us was like 10 knots 10.7 knots mm. or something over ground that oh, is, sorry but, over the ground yeah but yeah just to be mindful of that very tight pinch point because there's nowhere else to go you have to go through there to go anywhere else you've got to go through this pinch point so just be careful what time you leave the locks but yeah so coming through the coronaros you're then into Loch Linney, which then goes on to the Sound of Mull. And it's just breathtaking places, as Lauren says, so many anchorages. And sailing up and down the Sound of Mull sort of became our regular, really, yeah, didn't it? Yeah, it was actually really nice. People either say the wind's on the nose or behind you, as it is everywhere you go, I think. But it was kind of felt like we were back in the Solent in that small little part because we had land either side and there was the most boats we've seen in ages. And by most boats, I mean about three. Yeah. And we were dodging ferries and things. And we thought, oh, it's like back in the Solent. So that was nice, sort of felt like a safe haven for us there, didn't it? It did, yeah. And then you ended up down where you are. Yes, just outside Oban and we're going to be here for our winter birthing yep. for six months until the end of March. And the sail here, the last sail that we had, was probably one of the best <laughs> trips we've <laughs> Typically had. Typically was the best sail we probably had, yeah. Yeah, it was a very bittersweet sail, but we do hope to use the boat over the winter. Quite tricky with strong winds and a lot of rain here, but mm. we'll see how we go. The plan is to get out as well. Yeah. But we'll see. Well, the most important thing is that Freddie has found some walks that he's enjoying. That's all that matters, really, guys. That's all you are. You're an incidental form of transport for your dog. Yeah. <laughs> We're taking him on a world tour. Yeah. <laughs> he climbed a mountain a few days ago, so... Yeah, 700 metres tall. He was running up there way before we could. Yeah, so... I think yeah. he's still recovering, actually. He's, yeah, I think we are as well. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but yeah, we're chasing those views. <laughs> <laughs> well, as always, guys, absolutely magical, wonderful and fantastic to catch up with all three of you. And thank you so much for that wonderful insight into the transit through the Caledonian Canal and all the, the locks and locks and everything else up there. So absolutely brilliant great advice and i know a lot of people will benefit from that first-hand experience that you've had so next time we meet up it'll be time to talk about your winter births and about prepping for the winter so hopefully you're up for that and we can catch up again very soon yes we will thanks yeah. for having us thank you for having us again getting stressed out planning your next sailing trip savvy navi acts like your mm. silent first mate cross-checking your calculations and providing all the information you need to get out on the water safely. Get integrated charts, weather forecasts, tidal heights, tidal streams, distance calculations and more in one place. Whether you're looking to plan an entire trip or just want to check the charts, tide and weather, it's as easy as one, two, three. Sail safe, 
sail easy. Sail with Savvy Navi. Download the app now on the Apple app and Google Play stores to start your free trial. Joining us today is Stefan Vessels, the CTO of a company called Exure, an electric boat manufacturer that's right at the cutting edge of what can be produced in an environmentally and sustainable way. I began by asking Stefan to tell us more about the Exshore story. Exshore was actually envisioned by someone called Konrad Bergstrom, who is a serial entrepreneur based in um, Stockholm. He's been thinking about this idea for a long time, but I think only really in the past two to three years did it really merge into something more exciting as electric drivetrains became more available and accessible. Konrad was quite involved in the UN and he was seeing that there's a lot of legislation coming out in terms of how water is being treated and being protected. And I think he was one of the first people to figure out that electric boats isn't just amazing in terms of the the mechanics, but also that there will be legal requirements for people to have more sustainable boating in the future. We as a team have been working together for about the last two, three years. We brought in Jenny, I think about two years ago, and I think that really kicked off things in terms of financing and structure. So it's been quite a ride the past two years. I'm always in awe of any entrepreneur that we almost become so in awe of because they are visionaries aren't they they can see what you and i can't i think sometimes also they have the capability to act on what they see because i think behind every strong entrepreneur they probably have two or three people that help them see what's out there if i look at conrad i mean conrad isn't the most technical person but If you explain something to him and he understands the use of it, then he can see the human aspect of it. So I think he's great. He always surrounds himself with very clever, nerdy people that kind of give him some of the trends that are happening. And then I think he kind of uses his insight to see which of those trends can actually translate into a business. Wow. Sounds amazing. I think we need to find out a little bit about you, though, Stefan. It's all very well talking about the product, talking about the boats, but... Who is Stefan Vassels? Tell tell us a little bit about you. I I was born and raised in the farmlands of South Africa, where there's a lot of rugby players and and rednecks. So it's really the last place to be someone that works in tech or works in boating. I've been working in Sweden, Singapore, US for the past 22 years. And I've actually worked with Conrad for about 13, 14 years. So I've always been working between creative and technical. First working in advertising, working a lot in software, but then I worked at Nokia for a few years. And then I really saw that this kind of integration between software and hardware is really the key to future products. Because when I was working at Nokia, they were extremely strong engineering company but they were not strong on design and on user experience and I remember when Apple came out with the iPhone how the engineers at Nokia kind of laughed at it because they thought it was just looking pretty but it wasn't the most amazing engineering I think they really missed the point and I think that's been my mission in the past half a decade to really bring a lot of the software thinking into the hardware world But I also saw that sustainable companies are going to be the way forward. Before, I worked in consumer electronics 
and I mean in consumer electronics we're not the most sustainable. You want someone to buy a new phone or a new pair of headphones every two years and things aren't really designed to last a long time. And I kind of felt that that wasn't really where I wanted to put my, my energy anymore. I really wanted to work somewhere where we're part of the solution and not the problem. You wake up in the morning feeling a lot better if you had a late night doing something good versus just making money. It's been amazing for me to see the amount of interest we have from young people wanting to work in the company because it is sustainable. And my previous job was with a, a very high-tech nano technology company that was doing a new type of sustainable solar cell. And that's really where I saw that this is the future of, of tech companies that I don't think in the future you could be a tech company if you're not sustainable. And listen, we could have a whole podcast, Stefan, on circular economies and the completeness of making sure that we have recyclability built into the very fabric of the product. I mean, in many ways, that's what we're talking about here with Exure, is it? Yes, yes. And what's nice is we don't have a legacy of being a company with dirty processes. So because we're starting from scratch, we can choose new materials, new production techniques, partners that are going the same way as us. Because at the end of the day, the boat industry is pretty unsustainable in terms of all the glass fiber hulls that cannot be recycled, people that just throw away engines instead of repairing them. So it's definitely an area where a lot of sustainable thinking needs to be applied because it's one of those industries that actually pollutes quite a lot for the amount of users it has. There are a number of companies out there that are at the cutting edge, are getting into the cutting edge of electric propulsion, not as an add-on to a boat, but actually fundamentally very much part of, of what you're putting on the water. What is it, do you believe, that makes Exure that little bit different? It's a little bit about it being a, a Conrad Bergstrom company also from its roots is that the engineering has to be great. I mean, the, the mechanical and all those hard values have to be good. But also, if you're working in an industry that's very engineering heavy, people kind of forget sometimes the soft, fuzzy feeling things like brand, customer experience, UX, UI. And I think that that's what maybe sets Exure a little bit apart is that we don't think of ourselves just necessarily as a boat company. We think of ourselves more kind of as a platform. And because we're, we're bringing that thinking into it, I think we're playing a slightly different game than some of our competitors are. Because in Sweden, we have great competitors. I have a lot of respect for Candela, which is just across the lake from us. We definitely inspire and challenge each other but I think Exure has always been thinking more about the complete concept than necessarily just focusing on the boat even though of course what we're doing today is very focused on making the boat as great as possible. Of course any new product especially when you're building it from the literally from the keel upwards requires a huge amount of field trials and R&D some big numbers out there I'd imagine have been invested into this product already a lot of time but clearly it's moving forward you're now producing boats that people are using. We're actually producing them at a, a very high rate for being built in Sweden. When I was living in Singapore, I was totally shocked by how quickly Chinese factories could produce products that would take months to, to put together in, in Europe. I was a bit, in the beginning, I was like, what? We're going to produce 
uh, high volume boats in Europe, but the, the team we've put together and the culture we have is quite exceptional for Scandinavia that we have people that are very passionate about quality, but also being time efficient. It's interesting that we're making it work. The customers that have the boats are very happy with them. I think it's sometimes a bit scary the amount of product we're pushing so quickly into the market, but I think the market is changing so quickly that if you're not willing to put yourself out there, you might be left behind. Owners of electric cars are suffering massive range anxiety and a lack of reliable smart charging points. How are XSure addressing those kind of issues afloat? In the recreational boat market, it's kind of a good market to do electric vehicles in A, because a lot of these recreational boats are not necessarily used as utility vehicles. They are pleasure and recreational boats. So in general, the, the trips that people make on their boats are actually pretty short. We have a very big battery in our boat versus competitors, which means that if we look at the amount of driving our owners do, it is extremely rare that they even get to 10% left in their batteries. And a lot of these owners only use their boats maybe one to two months in the year up here in Scandinavia. So range anxiety is something that we thought would be a bigger issue, but it seems that people generally plan their trips quite well. But on, a, on another level, we're not necessarily going to fight the charger fight, but we are forming partnerships with everyone around the world that are doing charger and supercharger networks to make sure that information is shared with our customers via the apps or via the mapping so that they at least have uh, a very good idea of where the charging points will be. But at the moment, at, for the cost that the boat is selling at, a lot of the customers are businesses and they, have, they normally have their own infrastructure and they have quite set ways that they use the boats. And then our other owners at the moment are normally high-income individuals that have their own chargers or have very specific areas that they move in between. But I think it will always be a challenge for new buyers, this fear of, of range. But once they actually own the boat, we haven't really seen our owners uh, running out of juice or, or having issues keeping their boats charged. You mentioned there about partnerships, very important, of course, in any business. Uh, how important is it to your business to partner with someone like Savvy Navi? I think Savvy Navi is one of those kind of key partnerships. I think there's a lot of disruption happening in the boat industry. There's a lot of people leaving the traditional boat companies like Garmin and Navico and Raymarine and starting their own things and taking the disruptive ideas out into the open. If, if you look at marine mapping, when I saw the, the quality of marine maps and the experience of it the first time, I was really shocked because I think in a way the marine world was a little bit ahead in terms of mapping maybe 20 years ago, but it was lulled into this sense of <laughs> false security where today the mapping experience on the commercial systems are really outdated. So I think a partner like Savvy Navi is extremely experienced, A, because the mapping experience is so much more modern and closer to what a modern consumer would expect, but also the fact that we're talking about charging maps and things like that. I mean, we've tried with some of the traditional 
big marine suppliers to do a charging map and even said, yes, let's do it. It's been eight, nine months before they could even then start actually adding it to their maps where someone like Savvy Navi, if the data is there, you could have that up and running for a customer extremely fast. And I think that kind of speed with which you can add features to the map, I think there's going to be, as the electric boat market becomes more commoditized, these things are going to be more important in terms of what is your UX, UI experience, apart from the fact that the boat is electric. I think the whole navigation mapping experience is going to be completely disrupted. And I think someone like Savvy Navi is going to be one of those companies doing that. So we really want to align ourselves with the guys that have the same kind of eagerness to do something new in the industry. What's the, the plan next five years, next 10 years? What's in store for Exure? There's a lot of exciting things happening that I'm not sure we're allowed to talk about. But of course, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be about expanding worldwide. This is a Swedish built boat, but 80% of all the recreational boats are sold in the US. So there's no way we're going to stay a Scandinavian company. So A, it's going to be about uh, global rollout, Americas, uh, North, South, Middle East, Asia, but then also being able to build up a very efficient partnership distribution and support network so that we can actually good take very good physical care of our customers all over the world. The essence at the heart of Exure is about doing the right thing for the environment, isn't it? That's at the core of all of this, is we're not burning fossil fuels. So the issue is going to be really, as it is in the car world, it's going to be about battery technology and how good and how environmentally safe and how environmentally friendly batteries are. Exactly. And I'm always telling people when we look at our batteries today, we're probably going to laugh at them in about five years time, how heavy they were, how much cooling they needed. There's a few levels where this works. Of course, there's this feeling of wanting to make something that's better for the environment, but it's also in terms of noise. The amount of noise we generate above and below the water is a lot less. That's something at the moment people are thinking about emissions, but I think the, the next level will be about noise pollution. Seven Vessels, thank you so much for joining us for today's Savvy Navi podcast. Awesome, and, and thanks a lot for doing what you guys are doing. I'm, I'm happy we're both kind of disrupting the industry a bit. All the best. Thank you so much to all of today's guests for joining us. Please join us for more soon. And don't forget, if you have any questions that you would like me to ask the crew of Phoenix, just let me know via the Savvy Navi website. Thanks for listening. The Boating Life Podcast with Savvy Navi. Making marine navigation at sea easy.